Please turn to Revelation this morning, but also to 1 Samuel, of all places, 1 Samuel, chapter 30. Once again, I want to thank the Lord's faithful witness, Pastor Lee, for bringing that marvelous message on Thursday night. And I have selfish reasons to be grateful for it, even though it was a wonderful development of Doctrine on the Everlasting Covenant, a sweeping survey of the Old Testament Word of God, and available to you, by the way, on MP3 and DVD, I suppose. He also gave me a chance to kind of look around a little bit and see where I am in the book of Revelation. There's a lot of good things that have been done by some good men and some good women in research. But I know the Lord got a hold of me because he wants me to present it in a way that is creatively my own style in him. And so we begin the second phase of Rev the Book today on part two, I call it, exposition. First 18 or so messages were on orientation for you and me to get our bearings. And speaking of getting our bearings, since it seems like we're all over the map sometimes, I've decided to print out some of my fairly rough notes. It will come off sort of like a transcript in some cases. But the first message will be out. If not today, it may be out even as early as after this message. Uh, free printouts of the teachings. And I think it's going to be very important for you to read them. It doesn't take long. It gets more, you get more of a an anchorage in the book by reading the messages. Believe it or not, there is a method to my creativity. I also want to remind you that the next week is the kickoff of the Tetelestai Book Club and Lou Ross, this handsome lad down in the front row. Well, there are many handsome lads. You can pick them out, but is pioneering this vision, and I, I think it's a wonderful vision, and it's a way that many are going to, I find, be creatively challenged as well as built up and strengthened in the faith and in the hope and in the love that is in Christ Jesus. And the, the first book is The Lost World of Genesis by John Walton, which is a particularly intriguing work, which I think fits right in, in fact, with what we're doing, that ultimately the creation renewed and restored and even transfigured becomes the cosmic temple for God to indwell, the created universe, so that he is all in all in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-eight, And that certainly is the ultimate message of, of the book we're studying, Rev the Book, as I like to call the series. We have prayed, and I have prayed for you and for your receptivity three or four times today, so let's get cracking. History, it's said, is written by the winners. It's written by the conquerors. And that's often the case. Consequently, the histories of certain nations and peoples and cultures have been told by the conquerors or often by the oppressors of the people. Apocalypses bucked that trend. The genre called apocalypse, it's a genre of writing, a genre of literature, bucks the trend where the oppressors write the history. The genre that we call apocalyptic involves the disclosure of history from the standpoint of, or better, in favor of the oppressed or the persecuted who are presented as or projected to be the true victors ultimately. John's apocalypse also bucks a trend within apocalypses for there are probably some 30 apocalypses that we have extant that we can study most of them non-biblical. But the majority of them, the vast majority of them that are Jewish or Christian, and there are a lot of Christian and Jewish 
apocalypses, apocalyptic works. The majority of them are pseudonymous. And that doesn't mean anonymous, but pseudonymous or pseudonymous means that the writer is generally an unknown person, but he or she borrows as a pen name the name of some biblical luminary. Apocalypses have been attributed to Adam, more famously to Enoch, Abraham, Moses, Daniel, Ezra, Isaiah, or sometimes to an apocryphal personality like Baruch. Later, yeah, after the Apocalypse of John was written, the Apocalypse of Paul and the Apocalypse of Peter appeared. They were pseudonymous under a different name, under as if Paul wrote it, as if Peter wrote it, but of course they didn't write it. The Apocalypse of John bucks that trend because unlike almost all other apocalypses, there's one exception called the shepherd by Hermas, H-E-R-M-A-S. The shepherd, also a very fascinating apocalypse, but not canonical. John's made the canon of scriptures, and I think partly because it's the same author as the Gospel of John, I believe, as we're going to demonstrate over and over again. He does not use a false name, but his own name. In fact, he makes quite a deal out of the fact that he is John and that he is the one who testified of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ. So, in a sense, he's saying, yes, I am inspired to write this apocalypse, which has come to me from God through Jesus Christ and through his angel, but I'm taking accountability of it as an author. Someone who writes in anonymity or with a borrowed pen name for one reason or another doesn't take responsibility for their writing. John does. He's responsible. He's reasonable. He's intelligent. He's attentive. And of course, he's loving. For his writings present what I call a summa caritas, the ultimate doctrine of the love of God. And that is not, has no exception in the apocalypse. David Aun, A-U-N-E, or On, writes of these two apocalypses that with them, quote, interpreters have an easier task since both were written by specific named authors addressing specific situations. Now, that's a very strong key to interpreting the apocalypse. It was written by a specific named author, and it addressed a specific situation. He adds that the language of persecution pervades the revelation of John, the language of persecution. So it speaks to a specific situation in which there is severe persecution or the threat of it. This David Ahn, by the way, is written a book called Apocalypticism, Prophecy, and Magic in Early Christianity, Baker Academic from Grand Rapids, and I'm quoting him. I may quote him quite a bit through our study. Rev the book employs many genres, not just apocalyptic. You find epistle, you find fragments of parable, you find narrative. And it also calls itself a book of prophecy in Revelation 22:19, or at least a book containing the words of prophecy. That phrase is used several times in Revelation. Tus lagus tes propheteis, or the words of the prophecy of this book. Revelation 1:3, 227, 22:10, David Ahn, again, suggests an interesting differentiation between prophecy and apocalyptic eschatology. Here's another distinction that will differentiate your consciousness. It's very simple, but he writes this. Prophecy sees the future as arising from the present, while apocalyptic eschatology regards the future 
as breaking into the present. Therefore, there's a shock value to apocalypsis, the unveiling, a sudden disclosure. I'll read that again. Prophecy sees the future as arising from the present, while apocalyptic eschatology regards the future as breaking into the present. That the future has invaded the present is the message of John, not only in the apocalypse, but in the gospel of John. So far, I've proposed the following in our orientation phase. Number one, the gospel is the account of the incarnation, John 1.14, with the connotation of the instaration, my name for the restoration of all things through the cross of Christ. John 19.30, John 20 to 21, those two chapters. The second proposition is that the apocalypse is the account of the instauration. We're going to find that God holds off speaking, and we see the enthronement in Revelation 4 and 5, but he holds off speaking climactically until Revelation 21.5 when he says, Look, I'm making everything new. That's the climactic statement of the book of Revelation. Look, I am making present, active, indicative of poieo. I am making everything new. We have to hold out to that second to the last chapter to hear that. So again, the apocalypse is the account of the instauration the renewal of all things, with the presupposition of the incarnation. In other words, without the incarnation, there is no instauration. The third proposition that we've proposed in our orientation is the Gospel of John presents a human, personal eschatology. Whoever believes in him has, presently, the life of the coming age. An age now that has broken into the present. Everyone who has believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, has received in the present a life that will be lived in the future. In the coming age. The age that is irrevocably and inevitably and absolutely coming. Now, that's why the Gospel of John announces the break-in. Therefore, the life that is to be had in the coming age has already broken into the present. And with that break-in, it must be said that the new creation or the renewal of the entire creation has already begun, but it's begun with human beings. For if any person is in Christ, kinectesis, new creation, is evidenced, it's evinced as present, it's evinced as having begun. In Galatians 6.14, may I glory in nothing but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because by it, we have been constituted a new creation so that circumcision nor uncircumcision avail nothing but a new creation. And then Paul says, and to those who walk according to this rule, that means that there is a higher integration of human living to be had in this present time that is to be lived more fully in the future, in the coming age. And that is a life that has a Christological ethic to it, a Christocentric ethic and a divine power. All of Revelation 2 and 3 are the exhortations of the living Christ to the churches that they may be encouraged to live in that higher integration of human living in the present. It's a foretaste of the human living in Christ Jesus that will be had 
when all the universe is renewed and when the sons of resurrection live their lives in that renewed cosmos. So much is our privilege. By so much we squander this privilege when we ignore and are not attentive to the word or intelligent as to God's purpose or reasonable to present our bodies to him as a sacrifice or responsible to receive the word and overcome in our present scenarios or in love for the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom God has given to us to permanently reside in us. The incarnation is the inauguration of the restoration of all things. All things. Paul calls it tapanta throughout. You wouldn't say all things has an article, but here it does because it means the all things. It's comprehensive of everything. The all things. So we'll be asking some, probably the most serious question we can ask about eschatology. I'll be asking today and answering throughout our time in the scriptures. By becoming flesh with the intention of becoming one flesh with his human bride, a corporate entity of an innumerable company. The Son of God, in becoming flesh, united himself with the entire creation. That there will be a consummation and a restoration of all things is inevitable in the absolute. God is already present to that restoration. Now, this may be illustrated in a creative way by adverting to an event in the life of David. I'm only going to refer to one verse, 1 Samuel chapter 30 and verse 19. A band of desert terrorists came and took hostages, the men and women of David's army, took all their goods and took them away. God consulted Yahweh Adonai, God himself, and said, shall I pursue them? And Yahweh said, yes, and you will overtake them and you will recover everything. The upshot of that is in 2 Samuel 30, verse 19b. Note this phrase. David brought back everything. David literally brought back the all. The Hebrew is hakol, H-A-K-K-O-L, hakol chesib, David in the phonetic spelling. Hachol Chesib David, as you would pronounce it. In the Greek, it says Tapanta. David brought back everything. There wasn't a suitcase, a backpack, a pencil. There wasn't a child left behind. There wasn't a person, a wife that wasn't restored fully. Tapanta means totality. In the Hebrew, it's a common singular masculine absolute noun. Hakol. Everything there is, is what it means. Everything there is. And the Greek, tapanta epistrepsin. David. Epistrepsin means to convert or to bring back everything. The New International and the New Living Translation says David brought everything back. The New Jerusalem Bible says David recovered everything. The New King James, David recovered all. The Bible in basic English, David got it all back. 
I hope this doesn't inspire Jim to do his message that he wants to do. Abraham got his groove back. David got it all back. And the Vulgate Latin translation says, Omnia reduxit David. David got everything into a redux situation. Jesus Christ is the greater David. He gets everything back. He recovers all. Jesus Christ is the greater David in the three strains of messianic expectation. You remember, John the baptizer was interrogated by priests sent from Jerusalem by the Pharisees and the domineering Christian or spiritual leaders, so-called not Christian. They asked him, are you the Messiah, meaning the Davidic king, the greater David? He said, I'm not. They said, are you Elijah? And he said, understanding that they meant Elijah Phineas, the one who comes to literally restore all things, raise the dead, and restore the universe. He said, no, I'm not. They said, are you that prophet? Speaking of the prophet that would come to be a greater Moses in Deuteronomy 18, 15, and following. He said, I am not. They thought there were going to be three Messiah figures a prophet, a priest, and a king. They asked John, and he said no to each one of them. And then he said, but there is one among you, one to whom all these titles apply. He is the greater David as the messianic king. He is the greater Moses as the exodus deliverer of the new exodus, the great prophet Messiah. And he is the great priest Messiah after the order of Elijah Phineas who will restore all things. He's standing among you and you don't know who he is. And later on, John identifies him and says, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John one twenty nine. This is discovery. I'm not telling you everything. I'm just proclaiming the word and you're to discover. In fact, from Hebrews 11, we understand into Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, that in Jesus Christ living as the incarnate word, he lived the lives of the patriarchs over again. He lived again the life of Adam, only this time without sin. He becomes a greater Adam who selects a bride who will not fall, for in Adam Eve dies, but in Christ the bride all are made alive. In Christ all are made alive. He takes on flesh to become one flesh with a human bride, an innumerable company of people. He's greater than Abraham, and he lives Abraham's life, and Abraham's life was not complete. These all died in faith, not receiving the promises, says Hebrews. But looking unto Jesus means Jesus Christ came to live their lives again only more fully and more perfectly. Looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. The good news is that Jesus Christ also came to live your life more fully. If your life isn't full and you die, then it hasn't been full. Christ has lived your life fully. And when you're raised from the dead, you will have his full living to live forever and ever and ever. And therefore, he lived the life of David again, only more fully. So he doesn't just rescue a group of people and recover all. He recovers all as a greater David. He illustrates it in a kind of a creative way in John 6, in the prelude to his midrash. He takes a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish, feeds about 15,000 people until they're so full they can't hardly get up off their haunches. They're seated. He's led them into green pastures, you see, and he's fed them. He's restored them. 
And it said, when they were all full in John 6, 12, Jesus said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments of bread. And then he says in the Greek, hina me ti apoletai, so that nothing will be lost. So that nothing will be lost. Later on, he says, my flesh, the flesh that he took on, is bread, saving and sustaining nourishment for the world. Not like Moses who gave manna, who called for manna and God answered and sent manna to a group of people, an ethnic people and a mixed ethnic group from Egypt. My flesh, I am the bread that comes down from my father. My flesh is bread for the world. John 6.51. Just leaving it that way, that's what he said. Yeah, but, yeah, but what? He takes away the sin of the world. Yeah, but, yeah, but what? Jesus Christ is the greater David. And as the scripture says, and Peter said it, all the prophets have always talked about this from the very beginning. And Jesus Christ, who died and arose from the dead, is now in heaven. And he must be retained there until the restoration of all things. Apokatastasis panton. The restoration of everything. Now, we're supposed to qualify that, but I'm not. Rev the book speaks plainly of the restoration of all things, echoing Isaiah 65, 17 and Isaiah 66, 22 of the post-exilic Trito-Isaiah, the third Isaiah after the exile. Look, I'm making all things new. And it's echoed in Revelation 21.5. Look, I'm making all things new. Panta. I'm making all things new. Look, I'm making all things new. Now, speaking of this restoration of creation, or better, the restoration of all things, Jürgen Moltmann, that's J-U-R-G-E-N-M-O-L-T-M-A-N-N, wrote the following paragraph. Listen carefully. This isn't what I'm saying. This is what he's saying, but it begs the question that we're going to ask throughout the book of Revelation. Quote, the Christian doctrine about the restoration of all things denies neither damnation nor hell. On the contrary, it assumes that in his suffering and dying, Christ suffered the true and total hell of God-forsakenness for the reconciliation of the world. An experience for us, the true and total damnation of sin. It is precisely here that the divine reason for the reconciliation of the universe is to be found. It is not the optimistic dream of a purified humanity. It is Christ's descent into hell that is the ground for the confidence that nothing will be lost but that everything will be brought back again and gathered into the eternal kingdom of God. Then he says, the true Christian foundation for the hope of universal salvation is the theology of the cross and the realistic consequence of the theology of the cross can only be the restoration of all things. 
He concludes his chapter in his book, The Coming of God. The chapter is entitled, The Restoration of All Things. And he says in this paragraph, the last paragraph, this quote. The last judgment is not a terror. In the truth of Christ, it is the most wonderful thing that can be proclaimed to men and women. It is a source of endlessly consoling joy to know, not just that the murderers will finally fail to triumph over their victims, but that they cannot in eternity even remain the murderers of their victims. The eschatological doctrine about the restoration of all things has these two sides, God's judgment, which puts things to rights, and God's kingdom, which awakens to new life. And in one that really slapped me upside the head, from the book, God Will Be All in All, responding to a dialectic by Richard Bauckham. In another more recent article, Moltmann wrote this, transforming grace is God's punishment for sinners. You say, where can can there be any such thought in the Bible? Saul of Tarsus is a good example. Saul of Tarsus is a test case who said, knowing the terror of the Lord, we, meaning in the epistolary plural, I persuade all men. And then he went on to say, the love of Christ has now mastered me completely. And I have thus judged that if one died for all, then all have died. From now on then, I can know no one after the flesh. For once I even knew Christ after the flesh. But now, I know him that way no more. For if any person is in Christ, new creation. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, And he's made me, he said, an ambassador of this reconciliation, gave me the ministry of the word of this reconciliation, and we beseech you all, be reconciled to God, for he who knew no sin became sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Going on into chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, he said, I urge you, beg and beseech you, not to receive this grace in vain. Now this is what I read to you of Moltmann was the opinion of a systematic theologian, not a disciplined exegete. So if one aspires to be both a disciplined exegete and a systematic theologian, one has to run such lofty theological claims through what I call the exegetical gristmill. So I don't propose to say that I agree with those statements. I do propose to say, are they true? I do propose to run it through the entire scope of scriptural exegesis. And I do propose that I will come up with an answer for myself at least, and my own conviction. That's the way I have to do it. The question we have to apply ourselves to is appealing to the entire scope of the scriptures and a strict exegesis as to whether God's judgment is in the end retribution resulting in eternal suffering of the damned or annihilation the extermination of the lost, or whether it is a transfigurative judgment so that nothing at all that ever came into being by the word of God 
is lost. Does the question even shock you? If you can't ask the question, maybe you are in an enslaving religious system. I've asked the question. I said it's exposition, so let's go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. I said you can't literally interpret Revelation, but I'm going to literally take every single word and translate it because even though it's not merely by exegesis that we interpret it, but rather literarily, we can't leave the other undone. My style is to plow through verse by verse. That's what I'm going to do. But I'm going to speak around each verse as God gives me the insight. Revelation 1, my translation, the apocalypse of, from, and about Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his voluntary slaves what must speedily come about. And he made it known through signs, symbols, through his angel to his voluntary slave, John. Verse 2, who testified of everything that he saw regarding the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Is this, my question is, is this John who testified of everything he saw regarding the word of God referring to his response to what he sees in Revelation or is he saying, I'm the guy that wrote the gospel of John and testified everything I saw of the word of God incarnate? For we did, by the way, behold his glory with amazement, full of grace and truth. And the law came by Moses. Grace and truth came by a greater Moses, Jesus Christ, who is the embodiment of the unilateral fulfillment of the everlasting covenant. There's a high probability that John, as he calls himself, is referencing the written testimony, which is the other half of this present work. The other half of Revelation being John's gospel. The other half of John's gospel being the apocalypse. A literary perichoresis, as I call it. That he's the writer of the fourth gospel called Kata Ioannin. No other New Testament writer ever testified of Jesus Christ as the one with the title, the Word of God, the Logos of God. Only John, in John 1, 1, 2, 3, and 1, 14. In 1 John 1, 1. In Revelation 19, 11 to 16. And here. Although... The use of its Aramaic equivalent, memra, is common in the Jewish Targums, the Aramaic translation of the Jewish Old Testament. That's where John got his title, the Logos, the Word. Again, we can say with high probability that this John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He who leaned against Jesus' chest in the upper room, the human author of the Gospel of John, there are indications early on that the Gospel of John and the author of the Gospel of John is the author both of the Apocalypse and the Gospel, and therefore that the two together constitute a twofold work, a twofold divinely inspired literary masterwork what I call a literary perichoresis. For as the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father, the book of Revelation is in John's Gospel as John's Gospel is in the book of Revelation. There's evidence of this throughout and it's been demonstrated. John has testified of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ, reporting accurately what he saw, again, by beholding with amazement the glory of the incarnate word of God. Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah of Israel, and the Savior of 
the world in John 4.42. The Savior of all men, 1, Peter, 1 Timothy 4.10, especially those that believe. But of course, all those who will live that higher integration of Christian living in this age will suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12. Certainly, everyone doesn't opt to allow the break-in in their own soul. He testified as to what he carefully observed from his unique perspective as an ideal witness. And perhaps, if Polycrates, the historical writer, is accurate, the same John was a former Levitical priest, a high priest. What he reported within the context of a charismatic biographical narrative called John's Gospel were seven specific attesting signs that undeniably identified Jesus the Nazarene to be the Christ, the divine Son of God. John's Gospel then becomes a report which, when believed, results in the life of the coming age now for the believer. Let me refresh your memory. Note, as he says, the word of God and Jesus Christ in these two verses. Note the word and God and Jesus Christ in this passage that I'll read you from John's gospel, starting at verse 1. John 1, 1 to 6 says, In the beginning the word kept on being. The word kept on being in company with God. Divinity itself kept on being the word. He kept on being in the beginning with God. Everything came into being through him. Without him, not one thing that became ever came into being. Question. If everything without exception that ever came into being came into being through him, is it possible he's going to get everything that ever came into being through him back as the greater David, as Elijah Phineas, as the greater prophet of a greater exodus of an innumerable company from all nations and tongues and ethnicities in the corners of the world and the generations of mankind? Just a question. I have the right to ask. This is the United States of America with its constitution and the First Amendment is the right to do this. Ask publicly. The question. He goes on to say in one four, every without him in one four rather, in him was always the life. That life always was the light for mankind. That light shines in the darkness. The darkness never did master it. There became a man. He was sent from God. His name was John. You say, that's John the baptizer. Is it? He came for a testimony. Remember Revelation? I came to testify of the word of God and of Jesus Christ. To testify about the light so that everyone would believe through him. He was not the light, no, but he was to testify about the light. Who's that? I don't know. Could it be the author of the Gospel of John? who finds a great affinity with John the baptizer, who he speaks of in 115. But notice this word. Skipping to 114, he said the word, the very essence of divinity that was with God in the rapport of uncreated equals always, became flesh, sarks, He resided among us. We beheld his glory in amazement. Theaomai, 
all the way back from Homer means to view something with such amazement that your jaw drops. We beheld his glory with amazement. Glory that is of the only begotten from the Father, the only eternally begotten from the Father. The epitome of grace and truth, which means the embodiment of Yahweh's eternal covenant fidelity. As is seen more expressly in 117, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came about through Jesus Christ. The word, Jesus Christ. I, John, am the one who wrote and testified about what he saw of the word of God. Therefore, as most translations don't pick this up, maybe our translation should pick up the capital W in the word of God in, John, in Revelation 1, 1 and 2. John may be saying then, and again, I'll leave that up to your discovery. Could it be that John is saying, I'm the same guy that testified of the word of God in that thing called the gospel of John. I'm the guy that was rumored never to die. You know me. And I take responsibility for this apocalypse. I'm not writing under pseudonymity. I'm not writing under anonymity. I'm writing with my name attached to this. Seeing is the primary means of the author's apprehension in Revelation, the book. Seeing is his, what he apprehends these things. Seeing, I'll say it again, and this is the last note I'll strike today, is the primary means of the author's apprehension in Rev the book. Jump to Revelation 111. Jesus says to John, what you see, write in a book. Pretty simple. What you see, write in a book. You're used to that. Remember when you wrote the Gospel of John? Remember? What you see, write in a book. What you're going to see is signs, like what you saw in John, signs. In John's gospel, the author wrote what he saw. In John's apocalypse, John writes what he sees. We have, and I've counted it about four times. You may count it and find me wrong. This word in the Greek, E-I-D-O-N, Adon. The first person singular aorist active indicative form of the verb horao, to see. It's used 45 times by John, usually preceded by a, a breathless kai, and I saw, and I saw, and I saw. 45 times he says, I saw. Jesus said, what you see, write in a book. 45 times he reports what he sees. I saw. 45 times, starting at Revelation 1.12, going all the way through Revelation 21.22. And this gives John's apocalypse the somewhat pervasive character of what we would call a vision report. Report of a vision, or several visions. We could call it a vis rep. Military personnel will go out say, on reconnaissance, and they will come back with or send back a situation report called a sit-rep. This is a vis-rep, a vision report. The vision report was a significant function of the prophets. I mean the original, true prophets, the biblical prophets. In Revelation 22.9, John bowed for the second time Terrible faux pas. He may even be recording it just for purposes of teaching, though. He worships. He bows in worship to the angel that showed him the vision of the new Jerusalem and the restored creation. He was in such awe that he bowed to the angel that was guiding him through these visions. For the second time, because in Revelation 19, 9 and 10, he did it. Again, for the second time, the angel reproved him, saying, don't do that. But he added these words, I'm a fellow voluntary slave with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and with your brothers, 
the prophets. John is brother to the prophets. Never says here throughout that he's an apostle. Says he's a prophet. He's a seer. He's a fellow slave. I don't think he's John Zebedee, but you can think that if you want. I don't think so. He's where I like to be, outside the circle. Outside the box has taken on a new meaning to me because, spiritually speaking, it means outside the coffin. What they've done to the book of Revelation, how they've brutalized, lacerated it, tortured it. For money, they sell it. It's time to tip over some money tables. In connection with this, recall the impassioned query of the second Isaiah who cried out, Lord, who has believed our report? Isaiah's report was of a vision that he had of the suffering servant. It began in Isaiah 42.1 in which God said to him, See, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth judgment to the nations. That's good news. If Moltman's right, that's the best news you can preach. If the fundamentalists are right, then about two-thirds of the human race is going to be baking in the lake and screaming in untold horror and pain and terror forever and ever and ever while we float on flowery clouds of ease in heaven. There's two kinds of biblicism in the world today. Both have their interpretations. One has a grasp on who God is. The other glories in its own power and makes itself God. Even coming to the point of rejoicing in the pain of others and the prospect of hell for those whom they think deserve it. If I may quote Clint Eastwood from Unforgiven, Deserves got nothing to do with it. That vision of the servant culminates with these words in Isaiah 53, 12. I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as a spoil, because he submitted himself to death and was counted with the rebels while actually bearing the sins of the many. And he interceded for the rebels. That's the report. Who has believed this report? That God would take back a wayward creation, not by violence, but by submitting to violence, obedience to the death of the cross. Or we can point to Ezekiel's introductory words in Ezekiel 1.1. He says, while I was in the ghetto of the exiles... All of the exiles were captives in Babylon, Babylon, and they were put in their own ghetto as they were in Egypt, the ghetto of the Jews, the slave race. Ezekiel said, while I was living in the ghetto of the exiles by the Kabar Canal, the heavens opened and I saw visions of God. What a phenomenal opening for a book. Ezekiel then tells us he's a priest. In 1.3, as well as a prophet, he reports that the hand of Yahweh was on him in the land of the Chaldeans, which is Babylon. He reports the astonishing vision in which he hears the mighty rush of angels' wings that he said are like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of Almighty God, like the commotion in an army encampment. Ezekiel 1.24 Then he hears a voice sounding from the top of a vast arch or firmament which stretches out above the innumerable army of angels. 
At this sound of this voice from above this arch, the angels all suddenly become perfectly, stoically still. Their wings drop to their sides. The prophet priest makes out the shape of a throne with the appearance of sapphire, stone, that was above that vast arch. He then reports there was a form with the appearance of a human being, a man. On the throne, high above, from what seemed to be his waist up, I saw a gleam like amber, and with what looked like fire enclosing it all around. From what seemed to be his waist down, I also saw what looked like fire. There was an ambient radiance all around him, with the aspect of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, like the rainbow maybe that Noah saw, which was God's way of saying, I will never judge and destroy every living thing on the earth. That's an understatement. Then Ezekiel astonishingly announces, this was the appearance of the form of Yahweh's glory. The shape of a man and the shape of Yahweh's glory. John says, he became flesh and we beheld his glory. It's glory that can only be that of this eternally begotten son whom Ezekiel saw and reported, whom Isaiah saw high and lifted up with all the angelic host singing holy, 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 Yahweh Sevaot, Lord of all the armies. When I saw it, I fell face down, he said, and I heard a voice speaking. John was on the Isle of Patmos with captives, other captives. He saw the Lord. The hand of the Lord was upon him, for God, the Lord Jesus Christ, put his right hand on John and said, Do not fear. I am he that was and is. I died, incidentally, and then look at me now. I'm living for all the ages. So in closing, Ezekiel 8.3, the prophet also reports the likeness of a hand took him by his hair. Then the spirit lifted him up between the heaven and the earth and carried him on, carried him, he said, in visions of God to Jerusalem and to the entrance of the inner courtyard and its gate, which faces to the north, where a statue of an idol that provokes divine jealousy stood. I was taken to Jerusalem, he said, and I saw in the temple not the presence of God, but an idol that provokes God to jealousy. I, the Lord, am a jealous God. You will have no strange gods before me. In Ezekiel 40 and verse 2, the priest and prophet reports that, quote, in visions of God, he took me into the land of Israel and put me down on a very high mountain on the southern slope of which was a structure resembling a city. John says, I was taken by the angel in the spirit to a high mountain, and I saw not what looked like a city. I saw the city, New Jerusalem, coming down as a bride adorned for her husband. The third, not as I said wrongly last week, fourth vision, but the third vision in Revelation. John, then, is brother to Ezekiel and to Isaiah. He also has a report a report to be believed so that the arm of the Lord will be revealed to those who believe. In fact, in John's gospel, when the people were not believing in Jesus, though he had done a number of signs among them, John says in 1238 that this was so that the words of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been unveiled? As Ezekiel reports that he's among the captives in Chaldea, Babylon, 
John reports that he was among the imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos. As Ezekiel reports that Yahweh's hand was upon him, John reports that Jesus Christ put his right hand on me as I lay prostrate before him as a dead man. And the risen Lord said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead. But look, I'm alive for the ages, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. Don't be afraid. It may be that John, who was also a priest as well as a prophet, that his perception is one that is eminently clarified. For in Rev the book, as in John the Gospel, he sees into and then he sees out from the Holy of Holies. Father, thank you for this opportunity to expound your word. And we know, we don't have to ask, we know that what occurred here today is Psalm 119, verse 130. The exposition of your word gives light and gives understanding to the simple. Thanks for your kind attentiveness. Thanks again, Pastor Lee and Mary, and thank you all for paying attention. This begins the new phase of Rev the Book called Exposition.